The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. And if you're able, please stand for the next hymn, Longing for the Light, We Wait in Darkness. The second reading is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land in Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching their synagogues and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, the demoniacs, epileptics and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Amen. Just this last week, I was contacted by uh, the London Baptists, which for those of you who are wondering is the new name for the London Baptist Association. 
But anyway, I was contacted by London Baptists, as it is time for the five-yearly renewal of my DBS safeguarding form. Now, I'm very glad that the Baptist family take things uh, so seriously in terms of safeguarding, as of course do we here at Bloomsbury. Uh, we have people in the church here who make sure that we watch over one another and make sure that uh, in, we make every effort to ensure that all those who work and volunteer within this church community and indeed all the church communities covered by our London Association to make sure people are not unsuitable for the roles they fill. This is all good stuff and it's good to be transparent about it and to tell you about it. But of course, a prior criminal conviction is, is not the whole story. And a few years ago, the Baptist Union were trying to get to grips with the fact that some of their accredited Baptist ministers were just simply not up to the task. Research had revealed there were a disturbing minority of ministers who over several decades moved from church to church, wreaking havoc and destruction in each successive church community before then moving on to the next one. Now, most of these ministers never did anything that warranted their dismissal or removal from ministry. They never did anything that would show up on a DBS check. They were just the wrong person for that role. And in an attempt, in attempt to address this, the Baptist Union published a document defining what core competencies for ministry should look like. It included things like preaching and pastoral visiting and administration and leading meetings and leading public worship and using IT and that kind of stuff. I, ha I have the list somewhere upstairs in my study. And clearly, if a minister is incompetent in such things, then they probably should be getting some training or finding another career. But the problem was that this list didn't really address the deep-seated personality traits and flaws that characterised the serial church destroyers. It didn't address the subtle tendencies to bullying, often disguised as over-enthusiastic pastoral care. It didn't address the empire-building mindset fueled by macho conversations at ministers' meetings where mostly male ministers boast about who has the largest <coughs> church. Against all of this, Ruth Goldborn, formerly of this parish, gave a groundbreaking lecture at the Baptist Assembly, which she provocatively entitled, In Praise of Incompetence. She starts by making it very clear that she isn't arguing that ministers should be incompetent in the essentials. But rather, that competence in these things does not equate with competence for ministry. So she asks, what is a minister? What is a minister for? And I'd just like to read a paragraph for you from her, her really excellent lecture. She says, being skilled and competent matters. Skills and competencies will sustain us through significant parts of our daily activities. They will allow our congregations the relaxation of knowing that they can trust us and not to worry about us or for us. But if skills and competencies define our ministry, we run the risk of fearing to go beyond what we know we can do. 
what we are confident that we can accomplish. And our activity and service become what we can do, rather than our openness to what the Spirit is doing through us. Ruth goes on, she says, it is in our incompetence, in our unskilledness, beyond who we think we are and what we think we can safely do, it is there, I suggest, we discover the country of the Spirit's ministry and the transformational activity of the everlasting love. So says Ruth. Well, this was a few years ago and things have moved on and to some extent, Ruth actually won the argument. These days, whilst competence still matters, there is also a recognition that there are other qualities of leadership that matter equally, if not more, but which cannot be measured in the same way. So now, those of us who serve churches through offering leadership and ministry are invited by the Baptist Union to engage in a process of continuous ministerial development. Now, this is not unlike what many of you will have experienced as CPD in a more professional, differently professional, should I say, context. And it engages with the intangibles as well as the tangibles. So, for example, the continuing ministerial development uh, process encourages those of us in ministry to have a spiritual director. Maybe also to have a pastoral supervisor. And yes, I, I have both of those things and I see them every six weeks. They're two separate people. It encourages us to read and to think, to undertake further training and to engage in regular processes of review and consideration. And all this is good and I welcome it just as I welcome filling out my DBS form to prove that I've not done anything that would render me harmful to people. But just as Ruth pushed back in 2008 against the definition of ministry as competency, I want to ask a question of the process of continuous ministerial development. And my question relates to a truism, which whilst not always true, is true often enough for there to be truth in it. Um, it originates in a, a, a quote by Joseph de Maistre, who uh, lived in the latter part of the 18th century. Um, he said it in French, but when you translate it into English, it is that every nation gets the government it deserves. And I want to paraphrase this. Churches get the ministers they deserve. Not always, of course. We can always, of course, immediately think of exceptions. But I do think we need to pay careful attention to the role of the church, to the actions and influence of those in the congregation, if we are to have any chance of assessing the significance of an individual minister's contribution. In large parts of the United States, there is now a hire and fire approach to ministry with growth targets and short-term contracts. If you're the minister of such a church as that, it will certainly shape the way you lead. But even here in the UK, in less obvious and more subtle ways, congregations shape their ministers. And sometimes this is a glorious progress of mutual growth. But sometimes it can be a process of destructive dysfunction, as a minority of congregations grind down successive ministers until they leave. It cuts both ways, you see. Now, you may wonder why I've started with these reflections on the nature of leadership as we come to our text for today from Isaiah. We're in our little summer or pre-summer series of four readings from the book of Isaiah. 
The reason I've started here is this. Isaiah, in our passage for this morning, creates a leadership culture. He creates a culture of messianic expectation around the leadership of Israel. He sets up a situation which leaves the people longing for the perfect leader, waiting desperately for God's Messiah to come and sort out their mess. Uh, just occasionally I read through the list of um, the pastoral vacancies list, we call it. I've got a special password that allows me to see the way churches looking for ministers describe themselves. And sometimes when you're reading that, you think, goodness me, if St. Paul himself applied, you'd turn him down. Sometimes people want a Messiah, don't they? And this is what Isaiah creates for ancient Israel. And yet their experience was that for leader after leader, from prophets to judges to kings, the nation found itself disappointed as leader after leader failed to deliver. No one has ever in the leadership of Israel lived up to the idealized standards of great King David of old. And so we're going to take a dive into this passage and its context for a few minutes now. And as we do so, I'd like to invite us to think about what it is that we expect from our leaders. It might be the leaders in church life. What do you expect from your ministers or your deacons? But it might be, what do you expect from your leaders politically in our city and in our country? What do you expect from the leaders in your workplace, maybe, or within your family system? Do we compare them against the great leaders of old, against whose standards, let's face it, they're never going to measure up because the leaders of old, we've already forgotten their shortcomings and mythologized their greatness. Do we constantly hope that our next leader will be the one to fulfill our dreams and hopes? So let's hold in our minds the possibility that sometimes unrealistic expectations might be a factor in a person's failure to live up to their promise. And so to Isaiah. In last week's sermon, we were introduced to the broad context of the book of Isaiah, and we heard how he was uh, a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel, um, about kind of 700 years before the time of Jesus, a time when the northern kingdom of Israel had been invaded by the Assyrians. So the northern kingdom had been laid waste, and the 12 tribes of historic Israel had been reduced to just the one, the southern land allocated to the tribe of Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. David's city, Jerusalem and Solomon's temple in it still stood, but most of the land that they had ruled was now lost. And Isaiah was prophesying to the people of Jerusalem at a time when they must have been wondering if it was their turn next for invasion and destruction. He was prophesying at a time of religious and social decline. Would the Assyrians keep pushing south to take Jerusalem and Judah? Or would some other power swoop in and swallow them all up? 
Isaiah's time was certainly a time of gloom in Jerusalem, with dark clouds of war gathering on the horizon, a time of great threat and anguish, of oppressive empires and frightening armies. I think I would just want to make that link through to the time we live in. This church ain't full anymore nor are many churches, if we're honest. We live in a time of religious decline, a time of the clouds of war gathering on the fringes of our empire. It's tough sometimes. Isaiah can see that the writing was on the wall for the southern kingdom. And much of his prophecy is taken up with warning Jerusalem of coming disaster. But then here in chapter 9, we have this fascinating, compelling and surprising message of hope. One is coming, Isaiah said, coming to this people who are now walking in darkness. A child will be born, he said, who will be the true son of David. And so Isaiah created a hope that this coming king would re-establish King David's throne, would succeed where all the previous kings since Solomon had failed, by overthrowing Israel's occupying enemies, by restoring the nation's borders to their fullest extent, by ushering in a new golden age of peace and prosperity, one who would reign with justice and righteousness over a kingdom of endless peace. It's quite a lot to put on a child, isn't it? How, how do you think Joshua would fare then, Helen? <laughs> well, it, it didn't happen that way. It wasn't long before the Babylonians were the ascendant new power in the region. They displaced the Assyrians and they were the ones, the Babylonians, who actually invaded Judah. They sacked Jerusalem, they burned and destroyed the temple and they carried off the Israelites into exile in Babylon. The intriguing thing, though, is that Isaiah's words of hope for a coming Messiah didn't die at that point. They endured. This hope that someone would come and sort out all the problems went with the Israelites into exile in Babylon. It took root deep in their psyche and it became a part of their hope for God's future for their people. The people of Israel clung to Isaiah's hope for an idealised king, a new son of David who would do again in Israel what David of old had done in the distant past. If you've been listening to my sermons for a few years now, you may remember that sometimes I've drawn parallels between the way King David functioned for ancient Israel and the way King Arthur functioned for England in the Middle Ages. Both are kings from the mythic histories of their two respective nations and the stories told about them functioned to shape those national identities for centuries. King David's stories, you see, spoke to Israel of a dream of a united kingdom stretching from the north to the south, from the Mediterranean in the east to beyond the Jordan in the west. And similarly, King Arthur's stories spoke to medieval England about the importance of the values of chivalry in shaping a nation of English-speaking peoples. But there's another parallel between the mythologies of King Arthur and King David, and it speaks to our passage today from Isaiah. You see, there is a prophecy in the English tradition, 
in the Arthur legend that one day Arthur will return to save the people of England in their hour of greatest need. And this is what we find here in Isaiah, in a prophecy about King David. That one day a child will be born who will be the true son of David, who will take his rightful place on the throne of his ancestor. Messianic expectation, whether at a national or local level, can be a compelling narrative to live by. It keeps the people hoping that salvation is just around the next corner, that the next leader will be the one to usher in the new age. And so the messianic hope is born. Isaiah gives it birth and it rumbles through Israel's psyche, through the time of exile, through the time of restoration and the rebuilding of the temple. And then we come down to the time of Jesus and our second reading. The story of Jesus going to live for a while in Capernaum, in the region known as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the Nations, as it was in our translation this morning. Did you notice Matthew specifically mentions that Capernaum is in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, these two ancient tribes. The same two tribes mentioned by Isaiah at the beginning of his messianic vision. There's something going on here and it's worth exploring. You see, we need to remember that in these biblical narratives, geography is never accidental. The relationship between the people of Israel and the land of Israel was so intertwined that land and people become inextricably linked. And so references to geography are always trying to tell us something. For Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was the land that had been lost to the Assyrians. It was the northern land that the Assyrians had already conquered by the time of Isaiah. It was a land of darkness, a land of anguish, a land of oppression, a land of contempt. And it was to the people who were suffering in Zebulun and Naphtali that Isaiah had addressed his message of hope. That one day there would be no more gloom, that they would be glorious again, led by a bright light that would shine in their darkness, living with joy and rejoicing with the symbols of oppression broken and burned. So when Matthew in his gospel says that Jesus goes to live there, this is no accident. Matthew has Isaiah's prophecy firmly in mind as he describes the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. He has Jesus move into the neighborhood of the suffering and outcast peoples. He has Jesus locate himself in Gentile territory even before calling his first disciples, Matthew shows Jesus enacting the truth that his ministry will be for all nations, for all those who sit in darkness, for all those who live under the shadow of death, for all those of Zebulun and Naphtali who have been conquered and oppressed and put down for centuries. The early followers of Jesus found the messianic hope articulated by Isaiah to be helpful in their understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we can see this because Matthew quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 9, locating Jesus 
as the one who fulfills the long-awaited messianic expectation that had come down through Israel from the time of Isaiah, through the years of exile in Babylon, through the centuries of occupation under successive foreign powers, down to the time of Israel under the Romans and the time of Jesus. But there is a significant difference between the way Matthew and the other gospel writers portray Jesus as the fulfillment of messianic expectation. There's a difference between what they do and what Isaiah had set up six centuries before. Clearly, Jesus was not the political, politicized Messiah that Isaiah had been hoping for. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, it was not to take David's throne, to overthrow the oppressor and to re-establish the kingdom of Israel. Rather, it was to die willingly as a martyr at the hands of the invading army of Rome. But nonetheless, Matthew and the other early Christians saw a deep truth in Isaiah's words, which spoke to them of the hope that entered the world at the birth of Jesus. Not a nationalistic hope of restored borders and defeated enemies, but a hope that reached beyond Israel, beyond the Jordan, to encompass all peoples. It was a hope of sins forgiven, of broken relationships restored, of a vision for humanity where all are equal and all are equally loved. A hope of an end to the power of death to dominate people's lives. Isaiah's ancient vision of a son of David coming to Israel becomes in the hands of the early Christians a far more wide-ranging hope of a world transformed through the birth of Jesus. Those who had hailed Jesus as the Messiah had to learn a new way of understanding their hope for the future. They had to learn to let go of their unrealistic expectations, their unfulfilled dreams of nationalistic restoration and political success. They had to learn to realise that their Messiah would not look as they thought and hoped he would, that he was not going to act as they wanted him to. They had to relinquish their deeply held hopes and embrace instead a Messiah who came to suffer and die. To embody, if we like, the incompetence of failure. This is why I started with a talk of competency and incompetency. Because Jesus, when we stop to think about it, was not a terribly competent Messiah. A competent Messiah would have raised an army, would have marched on Jerusalem, would have overthrown the Romans, would have taken the throne of David, would have sorted out everybody's problems and re-established in due course the borders of the land. That's what a competent Messiah would have done. And Jesus did none of it. He died. He failed by that measure of success. In the moment of Jesus coming into the world, you see, we find God finally and fully encountered in vulnerability. A child born, as Isaiah puts it, is a child born incompetent. Joshua, I mean, at the moment, he's pretty incompetent, isn't he, Helen? 
can't even take himself to the toilet properly yet have to do all this stuff for him I'm sure he'll grow into competencies but the mark of God come to us is that this is God vulnerable God weak God dependent this is God reaching out embracing the utter incompetence of incarnation to bring healing and restoration and transformation to the lives of all those who embrace him God does not come in Christ to fight our battles to defeat our enemies and give us the gift of happily ever after rather in Christ God draws alongside us in our incompetence in Jesus God moves into our neighborhood into our Naphtali and Zebulun into those dark places in our lives and communities where we feel oppressed and weak and overcome and sinful and failing and so in Jesus we find the fulfillment of Isaiah's hope for a reign of peace where justice and righteousness become a reality in the lives of those who find their reconciliation with God in Jesus and I wonder what it means for us to proclaim Christ's kingdom of peace in a world of conflict what it means for us to long for peace in a world of war there is no more potent symbol of peace than a baby a baby ain't gonna fight anyone it is incompetent to do so it might scream until you do what it wants you to do but it's not gonna force you and I think there is something really profound in this idea that God that the Messiah comes as a child embracing the incompetence of humanity embracing our weakness embracing us in those moments of failure in order to give the gift of peace there are few things in life as peaceful as holding a quiet baby I mean holding a screaming baby is another thing altogether but you know that moment where you hold a child and they fall asleep on you and you just think I feel at one this is the gift of God to us in Christ can we find in our lives and souls a Messiah who gives us the deep peace of rest and love and belonging and acceptance that is way beyond any measure of competence and takes us into the being of being loved the people who walked in darkness the people of Naphtali and Zebulun have seen a great light on those who live in the land of deep darkness a new light has shined the light of Christ shines in our darkness he is our peace he is our joy he is our rest
Um, I'm now calling up Judith and Alberto to participate in a panel discussion. If I step back. Okay, hello. Oh, the other one. Yeah, hello. Um, well, thanks for the sermon. Um, I guess uh, a little thing that I would like to remark for me that uh, kind of touches me of this sort of sermon is just I really like to think always back about this notion of the Messiah or the Christ. I think we just take it very much for granted after such a long time of saying Jesus Christ as if it's just a conjoined thing. Uh, whereas in reality, I think that that's, that's really the key of the whole message that we're kind of sending out to the world, right? That Jesus is the Christ. That's the fundamental proclamation, right? Or, or in words of the Apostle Paul, that Jesus is the new creation and the new reality that we are all invited to participate in. And so I, I always, when, when hearing about these things, I try to, as, as best as I can, put myself in the situation of those apostles and those first Christians of how shocking must it have been what happened to, to Jesus and how they had to leave aside all these notions that they had of what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do and instead be able to reframe those things and use these concepts to understand the experience that they had had with Jesus, right? And, and explain how that life was impacting their lives for the rest of, yeah, for the rest of them, right? And so, so yeah, I think, and I think that this notion of, of Messiah that they saw in Jesus was just much deeper and much more profound than the old one. And I think it's a tremendous insight. Well, I don't think Simon could have chosen a better time for a sermon on incompetent messiahs um, because certainly in the uh, political realm that I've worked in for the best part of 40 years, we're full of them, whether it's Brexit, Boris or oh, Jeremy Corbyn. And I've been acutely aware of the folly of pinning our hopes on our glorious leader or the self-evident rightness of our policies which only if the if the electorate would only give us the chance would transform everything for the better um, and I've learned the hard way um, to recognize the importance of not confusing any loyalty to an ideology or a party with loyalty to the kingdom the importance of making means consonant with ends and being suspicious of Christian groups tempting us to use our influence or create power blocks to pursue our own interests or impose our own idolatry. And I think one of the things that Simon's sermon triggered for me was thinking not just about them, the incompetent messiahs, but avoiding the messiah complex myself you know the old saying about um, we pray as if everything depended on God uh, and we act as if it all depends on us well I think that's rubbish um, we don't need to act as if it all depends on us and take too much responsibility for uh, the outcomes because that's just that's just too much it is it is not 
in our power. And, and we do, as Simon said, follow the Jesus of the basin and the cross, and we follow the values of the upside down kingdom, and we light our candles rather than curse the darkness. But as I wrote in an article for an Anabaptist peace theology conference some years ago, perhaps the most important thing for me in keeping going and, and that I think we can bring as we try to engage in the sort of work of um, lighting the candles in the darkness is hope. Not blind optimism or visions of um, vengeance as Simon was saying, we know the costs of, um, of involvement, but the hope is the quality of persistent perseverance and resistance grounded in the conviction that however overwhelming the odds, the power of the status quo is not absolute and God's purposes will prevail. And that for me is what uh, keeps me going and looking for what is uh, my next small candle to light. Thank you both for that insight and that, those observations. I think it was a very thought-provoking sermon. Our prayers of intercession. <clears throat> Creator and ever-loving God, we come before you this morning in a huge range of personal circumstances and conditions. We approach cautiously and reverently, but with an overwhelming and deep desire to know that confirmation that we are truly a pilgrim servant people and a valued part of your kingdom here on earth. Again, in these intercessory prayers, we, we think of the Ukraine, and especially now for the Southern Kherson region, which has been hit by floods following the breach of the Kokova Dam this week. There are reports that hundreds of thousands of people are now without water. Lord, in a succession of seemingly endless, unremitting plights, we yearn for peace and stability in that very wounded war zone. But we know that there are pockets of violence, disease and suffering, which are played out daily in areas of the globe which do not reach the headlines. God of peace and harmony, may thy guiding love reach out to all who are experiencing unimaginable suffering and distress in regions unknown to us. And in these mostly post-COVID times, let us give thanks again for the doctors, nurses, medical and all care staff who have given selflessly in that great call of duty. We pray today for the infirm, the hospitalized, for those receiving palliative care, for others who battle addiction, for the housebound, for those whose life experience remains a crushing solitude, for others who feel assaulted or overwhelmed simply by the daily grind of life. Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayer. 
We have heard in the sermon this morning about ministry. Let us give thanks for all who are engaged in the high calling of ministry. And we think particularly perhaps this morning of the forthcoming Baptist Assembly next weekend. We know that some in ministry in both urban and rural situations are finding the present times challenging and discouraging, often with seemingly little to show for their labors. We're reminded of a verse in Galatians 6, let us be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. Lord, grant that thy servants in ministry be blessed with a spirit of perseverance and strength in their calling, that they faint not. Let us remember too those newly bereaved. We think of the family of Jim Bishop who passed away this week and whose three children, Robert, Catherine and Sarah, all musicians, were members here contributing so much to music in worship over many years. Lord, may thy reassuring love enfold and comfort them all. And finally, let us give thanks for the joys of spring and early summer, for time spent outdoors, the walks, the rambles, the times to relax, the wild and fragrant meadows redolent with colour, the whole unique magic that spells summer. For it is in this season that we particularly appreciate the rich fruits of creation and yearn that they might be shared more equitably in a fairer world. Lord, teach us how we can become better and worthy stewards in the field of creation. And a few words from the hymn writer Fred Pratt Green. For the fruits of all creation, thanks be to God. For the gifts of every nation, thanks be to God. For the ploughing, sowing, reaping, silent growth while we are sleeping. Future needs in earth's safe keeping. Thanks be to God. Lord, in your abundant mercy, hear these our prayers. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.